five in the eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new? Hello and welcome. It's Friday, so that can only mean one thing. It's five in the eye day. This is me, Michael O'Hajuru, saying one, two, three, four, five, once I caught a fish alive. Yes, it's episode 0345 and you're listening to Colourful Radio. And joining Michael by Zoom this week is Phil Woodford, revealing that we're welcoming a very special guest, an old friend of the eye, to review the week's news with us. It's barrister and communications expert, Mr. Collar Shanaiki. Hi there, Collar. Hey, Phil. Hello, Michael. Good to be back with you guys on Five in the Eye again. Uh, So what's our top story going to be? Well, we're going back to the tense standoff over Ukraine. What exactly is Vladimir Putin's game? And what have we learnt about international relations in 2022? Five in the eye. Story number two is the plea from senior Labour politician David Lammy that pardons should be granted to anti-slavery rebels who were involved in an uprising in 1823. The events took place in what is today called what is today modern-day Guyana, and the and the and the abolitionists were brutally suppressed. What's story number three? Well, black barrister Leslie Thomas QC has suggested that lawyers should no longer wear their distinctive wigs in court. His call was in response to fellow advocate Michael Etienne's public debate with the Bar Council on the subject. And we'll explore this with our resident legal eagle, Collar. Yes, we will. At number four this week, it's uh, a runaway tortoise called Fred. Uh, He was missing for four years and managed to make it a whole mile away from home. And finally this week, to wrap up the five, it's another story of reunion, but this time with a pair of dentures. Yes, a man lost them on a boozy trip to Benidorm and now has them back 11 years later. As Colin might say, that's the tooth, the whole tooth, and nothing but the tooth. And that's this week's Five in the Eye. Five in the Eye. Well, we're going to start this week by uh, looking at this uh extraordinary standoff between uh, Russia, uh, Ukraine, and uh, the West in the shape of uh, of NATO. Um, we, we've known for some time that under the guise of training exercises, Russia has amassed what some people estimate to be 130,000 troops, and they're surrounding Ukraine to the north in Belarus, to the to the east near where there's a contested region called the Donbass, where there's been uh, fighting going on in recent years, and of course down to the south in Crimea, where uh, Russia annexed the territory uh, back in 2014, and it seems that. Vladimir Putin is loving the attention. Uh, He welcomes leaders like uh, Macron and Schultz uh, from France and Germany, sits them at a table about uh, 30 feet away from him uh, because apparently they won't take the Russian COVID tests and he doesn't, Vladimir Putin doesn't want them getting too close. Uh, So there are these extraordinary set piece meetings, but what is Putin's game? What is the end game here? Do we sense that he is planning an invasion all along. Everything else is just smoke and mirrors. Is he looking for concessions? If so, what concessions is he going to get? Collo, what do you make of the situation out there at the moment uh, uh, and what Putin is playing at? So Putin is kind of an original KGB spy master disinformation guru. So I, I, honestly thought initially that it was just him doing what he's been doing for Russia, which is keeping Russia relevant and in the news uh, and making 
um, Russia the center of attention. Uh, but 130,000 troops is it's proper people, right? It's not, you know, if you wanted to do that, you would move, you know, maybe 10,000 and, you know, do a little bit of, you know, send a plane over or something. So uh, I, at the moment, it looks like there is posturing and there is, uh, you know, let's talk. And there seem to be some avenue for talks at the moment. Uh, but I have to say, I'm quite concerned about that. I think if you move that many people around and you bring others into close proximity, it only takes a tiny little spark for action to actually happen. So although initially I thought it was just going to be, you know, a bit of rumbling, a bit of posturing, maybe, you know, some new agreements over NATO not encroaching, you know, its territory, that kind of thing, which seems to be his concern. Now I'm, I'm actually pretty concerned that something may spark so that something happens. Hopefully it won't be full-out war. When you say something happens, won't be full-out war, I'm, I'm kind of with you there, Cole, in the sense that America, the West, is not making movements to war. You know, someone, someone said to me that, that they're sending pounds worth of weapons, not tons of weapons. And America has got history now in terms of, it's had the, almost two decades of failed wars of interfering and trying to get, create democracies. And even though we know Ukraine wants to be part of the West, you know, it wants to join NATO, it wants to join the, the, your, the I would say the common market, then I'm sure my age wants to join the European community. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. America isn't going to go to war for, for Ukraine. It's, it, it, it's just America as a country is not ready for it. And this is, this is Putin's strength. And this is where Putin is excellent at playing the West. Yeah, but you, you know, you say that though, but the, so for me, the danger is something happens. And by something happens, I mean, there is a politician's child who yeah. is in Ukraine who gets hit by a stray bullet and then it's like uproar and then, you know, it's just, it's too but, dangerous. But hang on a second. No, you're right. We remember Obama. Was it Obama? Told a, 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 line, a line is drawn in the sand. Well, they stepped over the line. <laughs> Nothing happened. No, I, 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 I understand you can. And to a certain extent, I share in terms of, a flashpoint, but America is just in the wrong place now in terms of a country. America does not want what cannot. Go I, I, to I, well, I, I agree, and the, you know, that there's 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 also the fact that America is trying to skew its foreign foreign policy towards Asia. Its main concern is China as an economic and military power, and Biden is kind of pledged to focus on Asia. And this whole business in Ukraine and Russia runs completely contrary to his uh, to his agenda, but. I mean, I, I think one of the reasons that people find Putin so difficult to deal with is his playbook is out of another century. I mean, we are looking at the kinds of posturing that we were familiar with from the early 20th century, the late 19th century in Europe. This is, to, 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 to coin the textbook phrase, this is revanchism. He wants to claim back territory that he believes is his. And um, we haven't really seen this on a big scale um, on the European continent since the 1930s. And I don't think uh, parallels back to that era are misplaced, to be honest, because all the same questions come up about how much you give, how much you concede, how much you appease. Yeah, and American presidents have always tried to, oh, let's pivot towards focusing on the Pacific. But, you know, I think as Mike Tyson said, is everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. <laughs> and Putin is very good at punching you in the mouth to say, I'm still here, I'm relevant, and I'm going to do stuff 
that means you can't ignore me. Um, he doesn't want to be irrelevant. I, I, and I'm with you 100% on that, that not want to be irrelevant because that's what he does. He's, he, he creates the narrative and he seems to be driving it. And then he undermines it like this troops are withdrawing. You know, really? There's nothing happening. And he's driving the narrative. We can only look at the way they, 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 they manipulated the elections in Europe, Ukraine and subsequently in America. So they're playing a game. And I think this is Putin trying to punch above his weight in terms of becoming a world power. And, that, and that, that's the bit I don't quite understand. Where does he want to get? What does he want to get out of this? Clearly, he's not going to get Ukraine because that, that, that is going to be, there's going to be some dire consequences. Europe, we're going to have to stand up. If we're to believe what Macron and Schultz are saying, they're going to stand up. I'm not, I don't put America in the same box, but Schultz and, 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 and Macron will we, we, we'll, 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 we'll certainly do something. Oh, yeah, but the Germans, are they're so tied up with Russian oil. This is, exactly. the, this is the problem with Russian energy, um, the, yeah. gas, the, the gas pipeline, um, Nord Stream 2, uh, which is actually kind of being championed by the SPD, who are kind of in the uh, in the leadership of the German coalition. Um, they're, they're very compromised, really, in Germany. Macron, I think, is all about, you know, Macron and trying to show that he's the man and uh, that he can that he can solve something yeah no and actually what's what you notice is that biden i think has been talking about if they invade we will cancel Nord Stream too firstly america doesn't have any any power to do that and secondly he was saying that standing along his the german chancellor and the german chancellor did not echo his words um and that's the critical thing so i think there's there's a lot to play for here i think let me say a lot to play for this, this kind of world peace because if there is a war and this is the only way, the only the only thing Johnson's ever said it come to power, I believe in, it will be a disaster. It will be a catastrophe for everybody. Because if yeah. let's say if he does take over Ukraine, then we get a refugee problem across Europe that'll ripple across Europe. That consequences. You might remember what was it? Um, Molotov or one of the Russian revolution said, "You may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you." Yeah, you know, and it and it will have consequences. So one kind of separate consequence it's had is apparently the Ukrainian um, candidate for Eurovision has, I think, been cancelled because yeah. he or she travelled to Crimea through yeah. Russia, and that's illegal. So it's already having already having one consequence. Do you know this? This for me is a very difficult subject because what it shows and what 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 a what a difficult man Putin is. You know, he's redefined diplomacy. You know, it's not diplomacy. It, it, it's, it's manipulation. Okay? It's a sinister. It's not open-handed. Okay, diplomacy never was. But with the way he plays it and his foreign ministry, they are deceitful from the very, from the get-go. So that all the normalities that you would expect between France and Britain when they negotiate you well, know, I think I think he's done a lot with the hand that he's been dealt or that he had, because Russia is primarily quite a small country economically. Um, say, he's the richest man in the world. Him and his mates have raped that country. Hmm. <laughs> They're very comfortable. Thank you very much. <laughs> I've either of you ever been to Russia? Yes, I've been uh-huh, there. Yeah. And, 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 a long time de- ago, a long time ago. I, I was there. I was just... Um, in, in the late 80s, and I saw one of the most desperate sights coming out of the Moscow underground. There was a line of people with coat hangers selling things, just one thing, you know, uh, 
And there was one man, well, there was one woman selling a dress, another, another selling a pair of trousers, and one man was selling a vest, a dirty vest. Another man was selling a pack of... Russia was in a desperate state, you know, and he, he did, okay, it's, it's a bit better now, I'm sure, but he's brought it up. But, no, but we've got a state now, which I would say is a failed state, because nobody, be, the, the people do not believe the government. They have no faith in the government, but, but, they, but, but they seem to limp along as, as an economy. And, and, and they're benefiting from the, the, these um, the, um, the, the, the current um, um, energy prices. And yeah. The, the, yeah. what we have to do, and I go, okay, okay, deep breath, we have to stand up to them and stand up to them. And energy is a way in. Energy is a way in, is, is a way to, to threaten them and maybe cut it off. You know, so we, we've got to stand up to him. We can't give in. Well, I'm sure we'll be coming back to this one um, because it rumbles on, as we've as we've said. And let's uh, let's review it again, Michael, with maybe one of our other guests in just a, a week or two's time. Are you trying to get rid of me already? <laughs> no, no, good colour. OK, I'll make a promise now. You'll be back <laughs> the next time we discuss it. We'll all have tin hats on. We'll be in a bunker on the ground. Five in the eye. Uh, story number two uh, this week is uh, featuring David Lammy, who um, I have an interesting <laughs> view and relationship with in terms of what I think of him. But essentially, it's he's made the news this week because he has called in Parliament for the um, uh, commuting of sentences or pardoning of seventy abolitionists who took part in the um, uprisings in Guyana in 1823 uh, and he has called in parliament for them to be uh, pardoned uh, the response it seems from the government at present has not been positive um justice secretary dominic raab his response was basically guyana became a republic and so it is up to guyana to forgive uh, not britain uh, which is an interesting response uh, on this issue so it is one that has become as as we have focused more on the history of whether it's colonization slavery the impact today uh, it's brought up interest, interesting thoughts about should we be looking to do things like this in the past is it still still relevant uh, should the government be agreeing to it or should they stand their ground in the way that they appear to be uh, so let me ask uh, you guys phil what are your what's your instinct on this well, you know, there's there's clearly a big debate about reviewing history and looking at the legacy of colonialism and slavery, as you say. And you know, if I mean, uh, to to me, this is something that can be done at the stroke of a pen. We're talking about something that is l- a long time back in history, two hundred years ago, that we do have a responsibility as a colonial power for. And I just wonder whether we should be. Um, you know, uh, rather than making a big meal out of it, like Dominic Raab is saying, uh, you know, yes, uh, we, we, we will look at we will look at this and we'll look at other similar incidents. But the priority um, is tackling racism and inequality today. I mean, the, the, there there is a balance to be struck, but I don't see this as a difficult thing to do. And I don't see it as particularly problematic. And if it raises some greater awareness of our, our, our colonial legacy and so on, then, then isn't that probably a good thing? What do you think, Michael? Well, I'm going to vote David Lamy here, and he says it'd be a significant step to acknowledge 
the role that Britain played in the history of slavery, a significant step. Why? We talk about slavery, we condemn slavery, and we applaud abolitionists. But then we won't go as far as to, well, forgive real abolitionists, people who, are, who gave their lives. Okay, we know there were abolitionists in the House of Parliament, and they went on, I was going to say went on marches. No, they spoke in the House of Parliament about slavery. But these people gave their lives to, to abolish slavery, and the government could do something. Because for a couple of reasons, the first, the one, the one that drives me, is this concept of, you know, it was different then. We're different people now. Slavery was the law in them days. We're different now. So, okay, fine. I accept that. You know, that was then. This is now. How can you prove you're different now from those people who gave money to the slave owners to free the slaves and gave the slaves nothing? They were literally left for nothing. And not a penny was invested in the, in the colonies in in the colonies in, in, in the day, and that's reflected today in terms of the the, the 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 weak weak education systems, the poor economic systems. That's a consequence of what Britain did. So Britain could could do something to say we're different now. And to your point, Phil, it wouldn't take much. It wouldn't take it'd be a step, because for me, this rep, I'm, I'm 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 big on what uh, Henry Bickles talked talked about reparation. And he talks about reparation starts with a conversation. Rab and this British government aren't having a conversation. They just say no. Let's just have a chat. Let's discuss it. Now, you could say they could discuss for days and days, and that, that's a separate issue going on. But at least let's have the dialogue rather than put up, rather than put up the barriers. Colin, you're smiling there. Is that, is that a knowing smile or is that a kind of dream on Michael smile? No, but it's, it's a smile of... In a way, what Phil said about uh, that it's easy to correct, it's a stroke of a pen, is kind of my issue in that I really would much rather focus on modern day slavery and what's going on today. I think these kind of discussions suck up so much air and so much oxygen. It's the same thing with mm. the removal of the statues, mm. um, you know, of roads and people like that. It sucks up so much air and so much oxygen. And if you are successful in it, for me, it's okay. And how has that actually helped with what is the legacy of that, what the impact that it's had and what's going on today? Uh, and why should we spend so much time being dominated by this conversation? And then it leaves very little, if any, conversation about the stuff that's really going on. What's the impact of slavery? What's the impact of of colonialism, how has it really affected today? And I just don't see that these actions and these conversations ever lead to the more important conversation about how we're going to change things today. And that's my real issue with it. Um, it's it's good for headlines. And then you have an argument about it. It's ridiculous for the government to say we're not doing it. Because quite frankly, as you say, do it and be done with it. But that's the problem is if, if you have a fight about it, you're having a fight about something that is hundreds of years ago. It doesn't mean it's irrelevant, but I'd rather fight about stuff today. And if you don't fight about it and do it, then it's, okay, thank you very much. What's that actually achieved? But, but I mean, wouldn't you, we, we don't say, do we? I mean, if, if we look, for instance, at the Second World War, which we touched upon in the first story, you know, there were people... Um, in the last year or two have gone to trial for being concentration camp guards in 
World War II. Um, and these are people in their 90s. And we, we could say, well, actually, that has very little to do with um, countering fascism or anti-Semitism in the world today. But it's a way of saying, actually, what went on in the past was profoundly wrong, isn't it? Well, no, hang on, go, go, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm, going to, I'm going to agree with you, Phil, there, and, 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 and challenge you, Cola, in terms of what you're saying about modern-day slavery. It's right, this important subject. But nevertheless, historic slavery is significant. It was a, a, almost a 400-year holocaust. And I'm reminded of what um, Cameron said when he went to um, Jamaica a couple of years ago to open a, a prison, to, open a, to build a prison there for people who were uh, deporting. And they were, he was asked about slavery, and he said, get over it. Get over it. And people haven't. Now, the challenges and the, and the negotiation, how can you help you get over it? Have that discussion. Start the dialogue. Yeah, so, That's so, denying it. You know, it, you just literally brushing on the target. That was then. Yeah, we moved, we moved on. We haven't. Many of us haven't. So the, the example of um, kind of holding people to account who have done terrible things. I'm, I'm not sure that that really fits because, yeah, you should absolutely hold people to account who have done terrible things who are still living. My issue is that if I have a finite amount of time to speak about the, let's say, the issue of discrimination, you know, slavery and its impacts and all of that, if I have a finite amount of time or attention too much of it is dominated by historical stuff, which makes you feel good to argue about, but actually has very limited real-world impact. In a way, I, I kind of liken it to, if I give a little analogy, it's not quite the same, but you see what I mean. It's when we talk about there's not enough representation on screen, and you know we have the Oscars, So White, and stuff like that, that dominated the headlines. And so people made changes to make sure there were more people on screen which was great, changed nothing behind the scenes with the producers and the writers. Mm. And for me, it's we allow too much of our energy and time to be dominated by things that actually have a negligible impact and far too little on the area that has a real life modern day impact. And so it skews the whole discussion. So that's my no, issue. It's it, not it, that it's if, wrong. If, it's that it's it's too it, focused on that if david lammy were here collar which he's obviously not and uh, but but you know i'm sure he might say he has campaigned very actively on the issue of uh uh black kids getting into elite universities for instance and the fact that they uh they they find a lot of obstacles to getting into oxford and cambridge and uh, he's campaigned for the uh the people who are the victims of the grenfell disaster and he would say that has made a you know he, he's been trying to make a tangible difference to people's lives in the here and now does that preclude him then from looking back at history and saying that things were, for, were, were wrong you would say stay focused on the here and now and ignore the past i don't think i don't think he i don't think he'd accept the idea that he's lost in history no so the the individual i mean so I, I mentioned about David Lammy. I actually have a lot more respect now for David Lammy than I did because I always felt he was more focused on getting attention than getting into substantive issues. I think he's actually really turned himself around actually now. So I do have a lot more respect for him now because of a lot of the things he's focused on. So I don't have an issue with David because he has actually been pushing for all things that are of importance. Grenfell, uh, Grenfell Windrush, um, this issue as well. What I'm saying is that 
if you look at the amount of focus that has been given to issues related to race discrimination, it tends to be historical issues, the statues, this. And I'm just saying that that just sucks up too much time. It's not that it's irrelevant. It's absolutely relevant. It's important. But if you have a, a, a limited f- amount of time and focus, put the hard yards in and on the stuff and get the, the publicity and the attention for the stuff that's going to actually affect people today. Uh, otherwise, it's just it's just a lot of energy on something that... It's not going to change enough. That's my issue. It's not that it's wrong. It's just not going to change. No, I'm going to say, Carla. You know, on the one hand, you're right. You're right. But one of the one of the earliest um, marketing sales issues, ideas that was brought to my attention was attitudes are more important than facts, and that's how people feel, how people view things. And it's getting inside people's heads to understand that black people are burdened by this history. And actually, and, and, and it happens, you know, there's many times of, of microaggressions, this frustration of not being part of society, of being lower, of being different. You know, we're talking about a, 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 a culture that develops this thing called the Negro, with, with no, this, this black person with no history, no culture, no, 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 no home just a black person. And it's, it's that sense of denial of self. And this recognition of slavery and, that, and, and the consequences of it, which is still resonant to this resonant to this day, that's part of bringing us together. And that's what I'm looking for. Let's have, the, let's have the discussion. And it's not fruitless because it gets in people, it gets inside people's heads. So, you know, it, there's emotions involved in here, Cole. You know, the, yes, the, the fact of slavery, it's bad. But there's the, there's the human emotion that I think is really important and, and people don't address. So, well, that's what it, it, it Cameron, when he says, get over it, didn't understand. Five in the eye. We're going to move on to story number three. Story number three is another, another story about black people. But this is a, an interesting one because it's, it's an, I was going to say intersectionality between black and white people, black and white lawyers wearing wigs. Because a black lawyer or barrister it says it's racially insensitive. And it's ridiculous to be wearing this wig. I remember I was in Nigeria back in the 80s. This is the heat of the day at the court there. I wasn't in court. I was walking by the court. And I saw these, these lawyers in all their black gowns and their wigs, and they were just perspiring. <laughs> they were just perspiring. And it occurred to me, that's complete nonsense. Why, why, why does a court in Lagos, Nigeria in the 1980s have to wear something that dates back to the 17th century England? But then this article made me think that's part of a tradition, a standard that we, you know, what do, what do you say? Come, come forward and let the bar recognize you. We recognize you because you've got a wig on and you've got the coat on, the, 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 so the gown. And I saw, I think it's a, this is, these, are, these are symbols that, that mean things in certain circumstances, and, and, to, and to deny them. You're denying, you, you create, you, you, you're taking something away from that very important circumstance of, of the court. Now, Cola, you are at the, I say, the coal face. Is that the, can I call it the coal face of this? Where, where, where are you? Are, are you a wig wearer? Uh, so I, I, I'm all for wigs mainly because it costs so blimmin' much when I'm starting as a barrister that I want to get my money's worth. Uh, so, I mean, the reality today is that 90% of my time, I'm not wearing a wig. 
anyway. So it is already fading in many instances. And actually, it's mainly used in trials in civil courts and uh, hearings in criminal courts. Uh, so it is already fading out. Um, in terms of where I stand on it, so it is it is culturally entirely wrong in that it was um, you know the, the the way the hair is and everything it's it's referable to white men <laughs> rather than black or any other non-white person. Uh, it's a little similar to the issues my my um, daughter had for a while with ballet where all the tights would be pink and the shoes would be pink and we had to kind of like fight to, so now she can wear brown ones. So it is definitely insensitive and inappropriate if you think, you know, if you were starting it today, you would not do it that way. But in terms of the impact, so I'll be honest, when I put on the wig and gown, it does make me feel more serious about the role that I perform, i.e. I'm an agent of the arm of justice. And it does really infuse that kind of importance into the proceedings. So I have to admit that it actually does do that. It doesn't mean if you don't wear it, you don't feel that what you're doing is important, but it actually does have an impact. So I've got to be honest, um, I am absolutely fine one way or the other because I hardly wear it now. But when I do wear it, I actually think it's pretty cool. There were obviously the issues raised in the story that we were looking at are, are, are about uh, cultural sensitivities and race and so on. So the idea that this is, uh, the, you know, the the the, the Caucasian seventeenth uh, century uh, ritualistic garb that's still being worn today, and also there was this issue that if you had an afro or if you had dreadlocks, the 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 the, the, the wig is not really very well suited to it. But I mean, I I, I would look at it from the point of view of you know people uh, how how people view the justice system and i think leaving aside these issues of um uh, you know of race and culture I, I think the whole process of law seems intimidating to people who are caught up in it so uh, you know uh, the clients of these barristers um, probably don't feel that at ease uh, in the court environment, which is full of these weird rituals and so on. I mean, I, yeah, I, 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 I personally, I mean, I've sat, I mean, I've sat on a jury in a criminal case, and I've seen civil cases, and I find, to be honest, I find it all a bit um, over the top and not very much of the modern world. Do you think that's a fair criticism, Collar? Well, I don't agree with it in this way. Most people will only be involved in the legal system once, maybe twice in their lives. And when they are involved in it, actually, I I know from speaking with clients how important they feel that the whole thing is taken seriously because it's going to have such an impact on their lives. Mm. So I think it's right that court should feel in a way austere so that everybody understands that you are deciding sometimes life or death issues or sometimes livelihood uh, or, or um, uh, you know, poverty issues kind of thing. So I think it's really important that it's, it's deemed serious, but you can achieve that without the wig. So there is no argument that justifies having it in the modern day when you have issues like if you have a turban, you can't wear it. If you have a hijab, you can't wear it. If you have an afro, you can't wear it, you know, in the way that it's designed. So I think it's easy to say that you don't have to have it. Other cultures, other countries do it without. 
Um, I just actually quite enjoy wearing it. Colin, you know, and not to put you on the spot here, but how how do we create the gravitas of the court scene, the court place, the court arena? But if not, okay, take away the wig. Well, you can't put on a lounge suit or a pair of boots and jeans. Well, you know? I don't know. I mean, when you look when you look at when you look at America, for instance, and I know this yeah. will vary from state to state, and yeah. so on. The whole thing to me does look more relaxed and more of the modern world when I see American courtrooms. Well, yeah, but, yeah. So, oh, okay. so in, in, in um, and, you know, a lot of the judges seem a lot more approachable, and and, and so. But I'm going to. You've, you've, you've still got the gravitas. The judge is high up, and he's wearing a. Often we're in a we're in a gown and he's surrounded by people. There is some sense of of theatre, and I'm the, the the wig is part of that theatre. So my, 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 I'm asking, I put it to you, Cola. <laughs> no, how, how do you maintain that that, that 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 gravitas, the seriousness of what's going on? Yet you do away with the wig, the gown. No, you can, you can do it without the wig. I do a lot of employment law cases, yeah. and they never have wigs and gowns in there. But okay. it's still serious. It's mainly it's the seriousness of the issues involved that actually, and also the way and and the the judge has an outsized impact on that. So some judges are all about this is my courtroom, this is a serious um, place, so we have to do it that way. Other judges are much less formal, and so keep it a bit kind of uh, loose. So it depends a lot on the judge as well. Okay, we haven't got much time here, Carl. I'll put you on the spot. Okay, so we, I can turn up in boots and jeans. You know, your defence lawyer turns in boots, you know, jeans or shorts, and he's got a T-shirt on. The, the, the guy is innocent, you know. It's, <laughs> that's, what, what, that's like uh, my cousin Vinny. We used to wear <laughs> stuff like that. I wouldn't recommend that at all if you're a lawyer. Okay, so, so where do you draw the line then? Where'd you draw the line? No wigs and no gowns. <laughs> there you go, line drawn. Five in the eye. There we will have to draw the line because it's time now to move on to story number four. And you're going to tell us, Collar, about a particular tortoise, I believe, that has made the news. I am indeed a tortoise called Fred, who went missing four years ago, apparently. Uh, and uh, Fred's owner was very distraught and she put messages on Facebook. I think every year on the anniversary of his loss, she would put a message on Facebook uh, asking people if they had seen Fred, uh, her tortoise. And four years later, so he went missing in 2018. And four years later, uh, the owner was contacted by a lady, I believe, who lived just a mile away from her. uh, And he had found Fred. And so they were reunited. Uh, And um, the, the journalist worked out that uh, at the pace that he did to m- take four years to do one mile, he had done uh, 0.0001141525 miles per hour. There you go. That's how that's how quickly a tortoise moves. Me, you, you just made me think, Collar, of Fred's re- Fred's reunited. I mean, it could be a, it could be a website. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean this 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 tortoise. I mean, we know that tortoises are slow, but do you think Fred? even by tortoise standards, we might maybe have expected him to have got a bit further, you know, perhaps down to the local Tesco superstore or something like this, but only a mile in four years. I mean, that's, that, that, that's, that's uh, almost as slow as Michael. <laughs> well, I, I, I wonder if he had actually got a long way and he was on his way back. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I find fascinating? I didn't know this. You know, Tortoise lived for, lived for 80 years, you know, and they bought him in 72 for 80 pence. So that's a yeah. bargain. That, that, be, 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 not, not for 80, but it was 50 pence. 
50 pence. Well, well, do you know the oldest tortoise was 255 years old? That's a bargain, that isn't it? Eh? You know, you, you can buy you can buy the, the tortoise for the family, three generations of the family. It'd be good that. Yeah, you, you, there, there are those giant tortoises that remember Charles Darwin coming to visit, aren't there? In the Galapagos <laughs> yeah. Islands. Yeah, exactly. Know yeah. the difference between tortoise and turtle? Yeah. Oh, they've got some stories to tell, those guys. The different tortoise, well, one's spelled differently. Yeah, but <laughs> what is the difference between a tortoise and a turtle? Uh, the, the to- okay. I, I had to look this up. <laughs> okay. the t- one, one's turkey I, I, different I, I, from the other. One, yeah. goes, one goes in the water, one goes on the land. There you go. Yeah. Tortoise is land based, turtle is more uh, um, uh, water based. I was going to get a bit brutal there. You used to eat turtles, and you know, you read Captain Cook and his mate, they'd eat turtles and they used the shell to eat it from that. that the whole idea of, you know, no. No, no. That, that's actually apparently how they matched the turtle, as in the person who found Fred, apparently it had other people call up and say, oh, Fred's mine, and they couldn't kind of prove. So they actually, I think the owner, the original owner had pictures of the shell and the design of the shell, and that's how they figured out that oh, this was actually that's Fred. That, that's so, so just a word to our listeners, you photograph your tortoise. If you haven't done so already, get his shell, You know, maybe put it on record, this is my tortoise. On yeah. what, 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 what's that Fred site that that site you were talking about, Phil? Fred's are us. <laughs> I was thinking Fred's reunited would be would, Fred's would, would United. Be get them on Fred's United. You get your your image, your shell up there. Yeah, indeed. So you don't. You presumably you don't chip. You don't chip a tortoise then. In the way <laughs> no, you do with dogs. Just photograph it with your iPhone. Then get them on Fred's. You Fred's you United. Copyrighted here. Live in the eye. Our final story this week is also about reuni- reunions and uh, reuniting people. But this time it's not a tortoise, it's a, it's a set of dentures. Um, now, there was a guy who is the manager of one of the oldest working men's clubs in the world, which is uh, uh, in, uh, in Staleybridge in, in Greater Manchester. He's a guy called Paul Bishop. Now, he'd been on a boozy lads uh, night in Benidorm some years ago, over a decade ago, in fact. Um, and um, he'd managed to lose his false teeth during uh, his uh, escapades. And um, he obviously thought that he was never going to see those false teeth again. But according to recent reports in the press, um, he's become a living legend because he's received a package in the post from Spain with the very teeth that he'd lost. And um, extraordinary, uh, extraordinary story. Um, it came from the, 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 the letter was addressed to Signor Paul Bishop, and it came from a researcher at the National Centre for Biotechnology in Madrid, where they'd somehow managed to um, sift the teeth out of some recycling plant and identify them. <laughs> I mean, what did you make of this, guys? I mean, Michael, there's hope for you yet, isn't there? I found this the most revolting story we've ever done. He vomited, he lost his, uh, on a drunken night out in Benidorm, lost them. And he lost them at the start of the holiday and went on spending nine days with no teeth, singing Elvis Presley, getting drunk every night. And they were found on a tip. <laughs> found on a tip. And he actually, and through his DNA, the, the whole story, this is just disgusting. <laughs> yeah, you, you wouldn't be caught dead doing that, Mike. You always harry a spare, right? <laughs> no, 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 implants, implants. I paid yeah, to get, the, get them in, but so they're going nowhere. These teeth are mine. I paid a lot for them. I'm not, I'm not going to puke them up on some, some gutter in uh, Benidorm. That's just outrageous. What was it? you think your mates would pick your false teeth up for you, wouldn't you? That's what your real mates would do, wouldn't they? 
you would do that for me, Phil, wouldn't you? Not. A- a- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Just give them a quick rinse down back in the hotel and hand them back to you, Michael. Yeah. That's what I would have done. Oh, that's what uh, apparently, got- apparently he went on to perform at a friend's 50th birthday as did an Elvis impression. I'm just wondering how you do Elvis with no teeth. <laughs> And Colin, were you impressed by by the miracles of modern science in Spain? The fact that they managed to trace uh, uh, trace this guy and ret- do you know what I I was the teeth in the post. I mean, this is a diligence beyond the call of duty, isn't it? Yeah. So I know this is kind of the the fun part of the of of this news kind of show, but I was a bit worried about the fact that oh yeah, it's oh we just traced you using your DNA. It's like, yeah. Wait. <laughs> Exactly. Why on earth are they doing that at all? That's uh, that concerned me. But yeah, no, impressive, impressive point. service, impressive service. They, they, they can sift through so many million, de- de- and that was in Spain to England. So is this yeah. part part of? So they're still sharing information then. This is, is interesting. Yeah. Well, I so on on a holiday in Greece, uh, my son found a wedding ring in the beach on the beach. Um, so I still have it somewhere. Um, I put it, I posted on Facebook saying I found a wedding ring on the beach in Greece, uh, Corfu at this date. And nobody's claimed it yet. So uh, maybe I should, maybe I need to repost and see if they find they uh, come DNA, back. DNA and any DNA samples on it there? Haven't, te- haven't tested it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's Paul Bishop's. So you could send it back to him. <laughs> yes. The odd fingerprint? No, no fingerprints. Uh, my son's like <laughs> five in the eye well that's it for this week Michael's off to find his dentures and if he can locate them we'll be back at the same time next Friday we hope you enjoyed episode 0345 and our take on the week's news thank you so much to Colin Sanaiki for joining us today my pleasure as always guys and for now in London this is Phil Woodford signing off and reminding you to visit our Facebook page if you want to contact us or suggest stories and this is Kolarilishanaike saying goodbye and wishing you a great week ahead. And this is me, Mike Lohajuru, saying, if you have been, thanks for listening. That's 5 in the eye, 0345, over and out. Goodbye. 5 in the eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new?